Thank you for listening to the Kol Harash podcast. The International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism recently published the book, Jews and the Muslim World Solving the Puzzle. Listen to this episode of the Kol Harash podcast as Rabbi Shalom discusses the origin of this book and highlights some of the topics explored. In July 2007, I got a call first thing in the morning. They woke me up. It was a call from my mother-in-law, Miriam Jarrett, telling me that Sherman Wine had been killed in a car accident in Morocco. And it was personally difficult, and I was concerned what happened to Sherman's partner, Richard, who was also in the accident. But about 45 minutes later, a concern came to my mind. There was a colloquium scheduled three months away in October of 2007. It was called The Jews and the Muslim World, Solving the Puzzle. Now at the time, I had been the assistant dean to the institute, and I had imagined I would lead one of the discussion sessions, perhaps introduce one of the speakers, schmooze a little bit in the audience. Now my profile at the event and my portfolio of responsibility was greatly expanded. Now, for those of you who have never been to a colloquium through the Institute, Sherwin had always served as the master impresario. He organized the speakers, he managed the discussions, he led the services, he ordained the leaders and rabbis, he did everything. So it was my Harry Truman moment where FDR, the great figure, the big voice, the huge personality, was gone, and I had to decide what to do, what could happen. So I contacted all the speakers and said, we're going. I contacted the committee and said, let's do it. We found volunteers who stepped up and did marvelous work. I bought most of the books of the speakers and started reading right away because I wanted to know at least a little of what they were going to say before they said it. In the end, our volunteers did a great job and our speakers did a wonderful job. The show went on and it was a success. And five days later, after I returned home, my son Jonah was born and I could breathe again because part of me was wondering, what if I'm on stage <laughs> giving the closing address and the phone rings? Now another new arrival has appeared. It's the ideas and the insights of that weekend conference on Jews in the Muslim world. It's a 100-page book. doesn't answer all the questions. And I'm often asked, boy, it's wonderful this book is coming out right now. It's so appropriate. I mean, even more so this weekend. <laughs> but uh, even this time of year, uh, this season, uh, this year, people have said, oh, what an appropriate topic. But of course, it was appropriate three years ago. And I imagine, unfortunately, it will be very appropriate three years from now. In the end, the question that Sherwood asks at the beginning, at the end of his article, which is the beginning of this volume, are still the questions that we're facing. Is the confrontation between Jews and the Muslim world irresolvable? Are we condemned to eternal war? Or is there a possibility of shrinking the hatred, of diminishing the confrontation? And to answer this, to get a hint at solving the puzzle, as the title says, we need to see where we are now and also to go back in time. Now, I reread the volume recently, and I was really struck that it's very good for 
two kinds of audiences. One with a limited background in the field, or even no background, and also for those who have studied. And I found that even though I do have some background, obviously, in the field, it's only from the reading I did in that crash course in three months getting ready for the conference, um, I still found that I learned things from the volume. The first thing I learned was how ideas have changed for the better and also sometimes for the worse. Now, I was familiar with the general history of Jews living in the Muslim world. They generally were a tolerated minority. They were able to prosper within certain limits and to live in the same places under similar circumstances for long, long periods of time. In some ways, much more stable than life in Christian Europe. The Jews in the Muslim world, and most commonly in the Arab world, which is where most of them live, but even further east, if they did find themselves in India under Muslim rule or in other places, they had a status that was called the Dimi. Dimi means a tolerated minority. There were basically two categories, Christians and Jews that fit into that. In many places, there were more Jews than Christians in this category. They were allowed to live in designated areas sometimes, uh, but also sometimes freely, as long as they paid a special tax that Muslims did not have to pay, and abided by certain conditions. They couldn't build their synagogues too high or blow their shofars too loud or be too demonstrative in what they did. And in some places it was worse, and in some places it was better. But by and large, it was survivable. And Jane Gerber, who's an expert on the Jewish experience in the Muslim world, described what she called four freedoms, not FDR's four freedoms. These are Jane Gerber's four freedoms of Jews living under the Dimi deal. The first was freedom of religion and control over their inter internal affairs. They could decide who they married and how. They had their own religious law that ran all of their affairs. They had the freedom to practice their religion. They could not convert others from Islam to Judaism. But beyond that, they could run their own affairs, lead their own services, do whatever they wanted. The Talmud wasn't burned. The Torah wasn't destroyed. Second freedom was they had freedom of movement. If business opportunities took them from Istanbul and Turkey to Cairo and Egypt, or to Algeria, or to Morocco, they could move. They could not move to the Arabian Peninsula. That was off limits, as it has been historically to non-Muslims uh, since the arrival of Islam. Uh, but other parts of the Muslim world, they were free to move and free to settle. The third freedom they had was the freedom of economic endeavor. They could be just about whatever profession they wanted. Within certain limits, I mean, they could become a physician, they could even become a court physician to the uh, caliph of the region, as Maimonides was for the caliph of uh, Fustat or Old Cairo. They had minor restrictions from time to time, but nothing like the guild system in Europe or the restriction on owning land in Europe. That was not the case in the Muslim world. And finally, even within a city, they had a freedom of domicile with no legal ghetto. They often would set up Jewish neighborhoods. I mean, after all, you know, look at Deerfield now. It's not legally defined as a ghetto, but uh, if you look at the percentage of uh, Jewish students in, any, in a given middle school, you may find it's 80%. You know, shades of uh, the Jewish ghetto in Chicago, which also was not legally prescribed, at least officially, although redlining and covenants and so on did have their effects. Nevertheless, the experience in the Middle Ages of Jews being able to live more or less wherever they wanted within the city was remarkable. Now, it might not have been the golden age of Spain as the 19th century Jewish historians presented it. They sort of gilded the golden age of it and said it was better than it really was because they wanted to argue to their contemporaries, if only you emancipate us and allow us to be Germans, look what marvelous times we can have together. 
look back to the last time we had that kind of freedom in the golden age of medieval Spain. Well, it wasn't that fantastic, but it certainly was better than being unemancipated in Germany in the early 19th century. And certainly better than the medieval Christian experience at the same time period. Consider crusades, forced ghettos, mass expulsions, forced conversions. Much more common in Christian Europe, occasionally in the Muslim world, but nothing like what happened there. The challenge, of course, is today, in the 21st century, there are basically no Jews in the Muslim world. There are actually more Jewish soldiers in the American army in Iraq than there are native Iraqi Jews. And there are almost no Jews left in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iran. There are a few hundred here and there. But nothing like the communities of tens of thousands that used to be there. They're in Israel, they're in Los Angeles, some may even be in Chicago, they're in Brooklyn, like my father's family from Syria. They're not in the Muslim world anymore. So the study of Jews in the Muslim world is history, but not present, and really no future. But in the discussions at this conference, I learned a lot about the subtleties. How life in Iran was much worse than life in Egypt. And life in Turkey at times was difficult, and at times was marvelously successful. Most importantly, I learned about the importance of interpretation. For example, what does it mean to be tolerant? To have tolerance. Does it mean a kind of mutual acceptance and respect? Or is being tolerated something you don't really aspire to in your relationship? I mean, I'm going to tolerate you. Doesn't sound so good. Does it mean that you just sort of grudgingly acknowledge that the person is there? Or does it even have a resonance like bearing a burden? In fact, the word for tolerance in medieval Islam, or even in modern Islam, has its original meaning as bearing a burden. Not the kind of tolerance we would envision as a basis for mutual respect and dialogue. Or consider the famous passage in the Quran called the Unbelievers, which Jacob Lasker, who's also a scholar of early Islam and, uh, and the Jewish experience under Islam, and a professor at Northwestern, actually, around the corner, he cites this passage and then begins to explore it. What does it mean? Here is the passage from the Quran. O ye unbelievers, that means non-Muslim, O ye unbelievers, I will not worship what you worship, nor will you worship what I worship. Nor do I worship what you worshiped in the past, nor do you worship what I will worship. You have your religion, this and I have mine. Now, Glasser explains it. It sounds very nice. You have your religion, I have mine. Never the twain shall meet. And you should take this under hate, you know, go off and do your own thing. No problems. Well, that's certainly how some modern Muslims are interpreting that passage. But as Lasser explains, that isn't always how it's historically been interpreted. After all, in the Quran, there is a sense of early and late. In the Bible, when you're a rabbi, there's no early and late. I can quote from a later book that explained an earlier book. It doesn't matter when they were written. But for the Quran, there were early uh, surahs, early verses that Muhammad revealed, and later verses that sometimes superseded the earlier verses and replaced them. And this is one of the earlier ones. It was aimed at a time when Muhammad was living in Mecca and the surrounding people were polytheists and, so, and he was in a very weak position. And so it's all wonderful when you're in a weak position to say, you have your religion, I have mine. As time went on and the Muslim community became more successful, he did not always follow this principle of you have your religion and I have mine. In fact, in his relations with the Jews, it became very complicated. 
there are basically three models of Muhammad's behavior toward the Jews reflected in the Quran. The first was a kind of toleration, make them pay a tax, and that's enough. The second was expulsion and forcing them out. And the third, for a tribe that was claimed to have rebelled against Islam, they were wiped out. Women and children taken aside, and the men killed. So which will be the model going forward for Islamic-Jewish relations? Well, again, it depends on interpretation. It depends on the generation, which sources they draw on as authoritative. Now, we do have elements of the same in our own tradition, you know. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says very clearly that the non-Hebrew peoples in the land of Canaan should be wiped out. But it also says, in a phrase that appears on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, proclaim liberty to the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. In fact, if you watch this spring when Charlton Heston goes back on television in his master role as Moses in the Ten Commandments, at the very end of the movie, he raises his arms and says, proclaim liberty to the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. Which I think is funny reading Deuteronomy, because that's what Deuteronomy is trying to say. So again, which teaching is going to take precedence? It depends on who's reading it and to what end. If modern North American Muslims are interpreting tolerance and the unbelievers more generously, their co-religionists in Pakistan or in Yemen may be even more rigid now than they were in medieval times. In some ways, it's become more strict than it was in that period. There was a strain of medieval Islamic thought that was a rationalist version. It was drawn on Aristotelian models. You don't find that very much in the Muslim world today. It's tragic that they're less flexible today in some places than they were 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. The second thing I learned was I learned the importance of the internal perspective. That is, there are some things that we can learn as outside anthropologists and scholars coming from our own background and visiting the exotic. But we're in the end going to have limits on what we can learn and what they will tell us. There's a history of people called Orientalists, scholars who went to the East to find the exotic, the decadent, the primitive, and then bring it back for European consumption. Now, there's some truth in what they taught and some fancy in what they presented. But the, res the reverse perspective is also very valuable for us. These are voices from the Arabic Muslim world who have been trained or even raised in the West. And so they speak both languages, but in the other direction. Instead of being raised in the West and learning the language of Islam, now they're raised in Islam, raised in the Middle East, and have learned the language of the West, and can bring what they can discover for us to learn and to present what's really happening here. I was fascinated to hear in our keynote, for example, from Fawaz Jirjis, who you may have seen on CNN. He writes commentaries from time to time, or was interviewed uh, much on the radio. He now lives in London, so it's more common on BBC than you'll hear him on um, uh, NPR or other sources like that. A wonderfully generous person, I mean, a wonderfully nice guy. But he had had tragedy in his own life. He grew up in Lebanon. He lost his brother in the Civil War there. He was an officer in the Army. But he's traveled to the region many, many times. In fact, he flew from Ethiopia back to the Middle East. He had good flights from Detroit back to Lebanon, so the Arab population. But one of his books was called The Journey of the Jihadists, and he went to Egypt, and he went to Lebanon, and he talked to people who themselves would call themselves jihadists, and explored what is their motivation, what are they saying, what do they believe? And Gyrgyz described, in fact, four faults 
lines in the Middle East. We think of the Arab-Israeli conflict as the major fault line, but in fact, he described four of them. The first one, and it was the most eye-opening for me, was the growing gap between rich and poor in the Muslim world. According to Jerjes, 40% of the Arab world is under the poverty line. 40%. He told a story that young men and the, the youth population of the Arab world is also off the charts in terms of percentages. But young men in this world actually buy fake cell phones. They're plastic, fake cell phones. So they don't feel embarrassed not to have a cell phone. And they carry it in their pocket, just like others do, and they sometimes pretend to talk on it. It's sad, but it's the reality of life there. And he said, I wouldn't be surprised in five years or less to wake up one morning and see one of the capitals burning because of this discontent between the population of the masses who are poor and getting poorer and the elites who are still successful. The second fault line he saw is between failed governments and Islamic parties. You see, if you look at Egypt, what is the alternative to Mubarak, who is the president? Of course, he's been elected president with no competing candidates, and anyone who runs a competing slate gets arrested, and his party is not a presidency, it's not an election. He's there for life, and he's going to put his son in charge when he goes. Again, not really a president, just like Assad in Syria, not really a president. But the problem is that these governments are so non-responsive to their people, have not dealt with basic social services. Then what is the alternative? As one man said that Georgie's quotes, if my son is sick in the middle of the night, I'm going to I'm going to the Muslim Brotherhood. In God they say I'm going to Hamas because they'll give me medicine. And by doing that, they win their allegiance. You see, one of the reasons why Hamas won in that election against the Palestinian, the Palestinian Authority, against the PLO, was not necessarily because everyone that voted for them were in favor of all of their party platforms. It was because the PLO was seen as irredeemably corrupt and the only visible alternative for the Islamists. So a second fault line in the broken Middle East. The third is the Shia and Sunni split, which has been dramatized in Iraq. But it's not only in Iraq, it's an issue in Egypt, it's an issue in Yemen. And the irony is, the tragic irony, is he talked to people, what he considers mainstream people, who believe that the the Shia-Sunni split is an American Zionist plot. Now, what are the Zionists doing getting involved in the Shia-Sunni battle? Well, it's, it's beyond our control to fix, they would say. It weakens us by making us fight each other. It must be a plot of the cosmic enemy. I mean, this is the real tragedy in Jewish-Muslim relations. Part of what's poisoned the well in the last hundred years from that history of toleration and you know, a minority status and an oppressed status, but still a livable status, has been the infection of anti-Semitism. Why would you send a bomb via UPS from Yemen to Chicago to a synagogue to get back at the U.S.? Well, you would only do that if you believe that the U.S. is run by the Jews. And so they're a target, like a military installation. Now, on one hand, I'm glad that they have such a high opinion. But on the other, it's unnerving to think that millions and even hundreds of millions of people in this world think that I'm a malevolent force working to oppress them. 
And of course we have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's another fault line. You have governments who have peace treaties with Israel, like Egypt and Jordan, but they might fall into the failed government category. And the more money we spend to prop up those governments, the more their people seem to reject them. And as Jurgis points out, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict serves a purpose that doesn't help in those countries. The dominant narrative in this volatile region pins the blame for deepening fault lines on America. Time and again, I am told that westernization and globalization, U.S. support for Israel and authoritarian Muslim regimes, coupled with America's war in Iraq and Afghanistan, are the sources of the ills besetting Muslim societies. Few recognize the gravity of the internal institutional crisis shaking Arab societies to their very foundation. Pinning the blame on imperial America is the easy way out. You see, they can use that as a scapegoat, whether it's America or the Jews and the Zionists, to avoid facing the real issues that they face. And these governments of elites that don't want social change, they're going to foment that and support it far and above what is a rational interest of their citizens. Now, we also had a speaker, not for the Muslim world, but who had insight into the Muslim world, in particular on the issue of anti-Semitism. His name is Yehuda Bauer, and if you've never heard him speak, he really is a remarkable uh, orator. He works now at Yad Vashem. He previously had been at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he drew on the important work being done by an organization called MEMORY, which stands for Middle East Media Research Institute. The website is memory.org. And what they do is they read the newspapers and the speeches, what's given in the mosque and what's given out in public, and translate them into English so they're accessible and we can know what's being said. And Bauer, he's, he's, wonder, he's wonderfully amusing sometimes. He compared, um, if you are trying to compare Islam to Judaism, it's like comparing a, an amoeba to an elephant in terms of scale. Because Islam is 13, I'm uh, sorry, 1.3, 1.3 billion people. And Judaism is about 15 million Jews. 15 million people. So you've got 1% Different. I mean, it's, it's a totally different scale, and even more importantly, Islam is a multi-ethnic, international, global religion. Remember, by the way, the world's largest Muslim country is not in the Middle East. It's Indonesia, so South Sea Island. And the next largest Muslim country is Pakistan, is the Indian subcontinent. And the next largest Muslim population, by the way, is India because they just have so many people there that even a 10% minority is going to be hundreds of millions of people. And then Egypt, I believe, is, is number four. And so the irony is we think that to be Muslim is to be an Arab. Now, it's true that most Arabs are Muslim, but most Muslims are not Arab. And so that's a multi-ethnic global religion, not to mention all the Africans who are Muslim and all the African-Americans who are on the other hand, is an ethnic identity. No matter where you're from, your ethnicity was Jewish. You could have been a Jew from Iraq, you could have been a Jew from Persia, you have your different languages, your different customs and food and culture, but at the same time, you were never thought to be a native Iraqi in the same way, or a native Pole, or a native Ukrainian. 
So this equivalence, saying that Judaism and Islam are on the same plane, on the same footing, a clash of equals, really is based on a kind of anti-Semitic fantasy of world Jewish conspiracy that 13 million people have the same power as 1.3 billion people, no matter how well positioned they are. And Bauer's real insight, again, something I learned, is that radical Muslim fundamentalism is in its own way a totalitarian ideology. They want to create a perfect world. And utopias are dangerous, you see, because anyone who gets in the way is the enemy. In one of Gurdjieff's book, he talks about the near enemy and the far enemy. The far enemy is America, but the near enemy are the people we can reach. They're allies. These non-Islamic governments who are throwing us in jail, they are standing in our way. And so even moderate Muslims, even collaborationist Muslims, they are targets too. You know, we don't always realize this, but more Muslims have been killed in suicide bombings than non-Muslims. Look at what's happened in Iraq. They're targeting Iraqi police stations. And, and American fighters if they can, but certainly plenty of Muslims have died at the hands of Muslims via terrorist bombing because they're getting in the way. As Bauer put it in one of the discussions, you see, utopia is what happened to Stalinist Russia, too. And anybody who got in the way, crushed them. And utopia is what the Nazis talked about. And anyone who got in the way, crushed them. And as Pastor Nemo says, when they came for me, there was no one left to protest. So Bauer said in the discussion, because utopias are dangerous, let's focus on working for a slightly better world. Not the best world, not a perfect world, but a slightly better world that might work the best. And as he described the population of the Muslim world, there is a case for differentiating between Muslim reformists, believers who wish to in interpret their tradition in a pluralistic way, he's it as a minority, a mainstream that is influenced by the radicals, but over whose attitudes it is, it is worth struggling, and a radical wing that can probably not be influenced. The borders between these groups are fluid and uncertain, and one can waste a lot of time arguing about placing this or that individual or group within the radical or the mainstream wing. What is clear is that for Muslims, Jews, and Christians of a religious bent, the elimination of radical attitudes is a must. That is, the mainstream is open to hearing the radicals, but it's not there yet. And the moderates are a very small voice. They're there, but they're small. And what we need to do is to help if we can those voices get amplified. But in the end, they're not going to listen to us. They'll listen to one of them. And we were very fortunate at this conference to have, quote, one of them. A scholar named Amir Hussein, who was born in Pakistan but raised in Canada, now teaching at Loyola Marymount University in California. And he talked about the issues of being a Muslim in North America and what he sees in the progressive Muslim world. He points out, for example, that American Muslims live in a very diverse Muslim community. Of Muslims in the United States, he said, 35% of them are South Asian, not Middle Eastern, from South Asia, India, Pakistan, or Indonesia. 33% of them are Middle Eastern, and 25% of American Muslims are African American, who are coming from very different experiences of what it means to be Muslim and how to be a Muslim. And he also highlighted, this was also fascinating, similarities that he saw between the Jewish and the Muslim experiences. For one, he said, both 
cultures have a love of learning. Uh, one of the funniest lines of the weekend was he said, you know, I became a professor, and it took my parents years to get over the fact that I was not a real doctor. Because <laughs> that's what they want. It wasn't a real doctor, but he had a doctor. It wasn't quite the same thing. But there's a love of learning in those cultures as well. The, the desire to rise for your children to do better. An experience of social justice and the tradition of social justice. There is a tradition of zakat, of charity. It sounds just like tzedakah, the Jewish life. In fact, it's sometimes even more demanding. And the experience of exile, of living in one culture and yet outside of that culture. The insider-outsider dynamic I talked about a couple of weeks ago in discussing globalism and the future of Judaism, but it's part of the Jewish experience of living in the Western world and yet not being of it, and the same is true for the Muslim experience. And he mentions some examples of whom he refers to as progressive Muslims. In fact, there's a book that came out in 2003 called Progressive Muslims, with a collection of essays. Omar uh, Omid Safi edited the book with the title Progressive Muslims in 2003. Perhaps for your next you will invite Zarka Nawaz, the young Muslim woman filmmaker responsible for a Canadian show called Little Mosque on the Prairie. <laughs> or Amina Wadu, or Kisha Ali, or Gwendolyn Simmons, or Rifat Hassan, or Leila Ahmed, or any one of a number of Muslim women who are working on issues of Muslim women, including wanting to see prayer led by Muslim women and involving Muslim women, not segregated. In fact, I was reading recently that the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which is one of the major spokes organizations for uh, the American Muslim community, is commissioning a study of mosques. And one of the questions they were pushed to add, and they've added, is how do you deal with women in your mosque? So they can find out how many mosques indeed do involve women in leadership roles, in worship roles. How much are they influenced by the surrounding world? In fact, we'll see really whether there are progressive mosques or not based on that metric of what's happening with the women. In the discussion that followed Hussein, again, he provided me an insight that I would never realize on my own. Someone asked me, what's the difference between Muslims in America and Muslims in Europe? Remember Angela Merkel from Germany? Multiculturalism has failed. But here, it seems to be working a little bit better. What, what's the difference? And he noted a number of important differences. First, in North America, most Muslim immigrants are white-collar professionals, doctors, engineers, while in Europe, they tend to be laborers with an unemployment rate that sometimes is very high compared to the rate of non-Muslims. Second, European populations tend to be more ethnically homogeneous, both the European majority and the Muslim minority. In the United Kingdom, it's mostly South Asians from Pakistan or India. In France, it's mostly North Africans from Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria, with former French colonies. In Germany, it's mostly Turks. Whereas in North America, both the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community are much more diverse. You can't say this is the way we've always done it. When you have a, when you have a mosque that is partly African-American and partly Indonesian and partly Pakistani and partly Egyptian. And finally, North American Muslims generally see themselves as well-rooted in North America. They don't really see themselves as having a home elsewhere to go back to or envisioning returning. Here is where they're going to be. And certainly their children who are raised here can't imagine going back to the home country. In fact, what they're finding now is in many mosques, getting clergy from the old country is not satisfying anymore because they know nothing about being a pastoral clergy person. They don't know anything about counseling. 
They didn't know anything about life cycle ceremonies, about inspiring oratory in English. They know Islamic law, the Sharia. And they know it in an old-fashioned interpretation, in the old world interpretation. Did you ever see the movie The Jazz Singer? Remember that conflict between the old world of his father and tradition and the laws and the ritual of cantor and the new world of jazz and excitement and energy and blonde goddesses in these days? Well, it's the same dynamic, you see. And so they're actually starting clergy training programs here in America to train their own clergy who will respond to this new setting and environment. Now, the most important thing I learned was how much we have to offer. When I first explored the topic, and I said, we're talking about Jews in the Muslim world, I felt that religious Judaism has a lot to say to Islam because there are a lot of similarities. I'll highlight just a few. An Orthodox Jew and a mainstream Muslim have a lot to discuss. How they treat their holy scriptures, the Quran and the Torah, a lot of similarities. Which city they face during prayer because they have to face a certain direction either Jerusalem or Mecca, which from, from America is largely the same direction. How many times a day do they pray? Orthodox Jews pray three times a day and Muslims pray five times a day. What dietary rules do they follow because there are kosher laws for Jews and halal laws for Muslims? In fact, kosher meat is halal acceptable because it's to a stricter standard. So if a Muslim person can't find halal meat, they can find kosher meat that qualifies for it, but it doesn't go the other way. They could even ask, what is their basic declaration of faith? You have the Shema in Judaism, you have something called the Shakata, the declaration, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. They each have a one-line tagline. And what does it mean? And how do they interpret that? But secondly, humanistic Jews do not pray, let alone daily, let alone three times a day. They do not face a particular direction during their celebrations. They do not follow Jewish dietary laws, and they dissent from traditional faith. We don't even use the Shema. So what are we going to talk about? But the truth is there was a lot to learn and a lot of insight that we can provide. First of all, the importance of reinterpreting tradition. The importance of sometimes breaking with tradition to challenge the path with present values. If we believe that gender equality is important, we are not going to be traditional and segregate the audience. It's a modern value. It's not a traditional Jewish value, but it's important enough to change tradition. Timelessness is important, but being timely is also important to maintain people's connections and relevance. Most importantly, the goal that we seek is not just toleration. Sherwin White had a great line to sum it up. He said, courage is the search for respect, not agreement. I don't want your tolerance. I don't want to be tolerated by you. We want respect. And sometimes destruction is the partner of new creation. You have to break with the past to be able to make something new. That Zimian relationship of the oppressed minority paying extra taxes and with restrictions, that had to go. That is not a basis for a renewed relationship between Jews and Muslims. You sometimes will hear Hamas saying, we're happy to live in peace with the Jews who live in Palestine as long as they live under the banner of Islam. That means going back to the Dimi. That means paying their poll tax and having restrictions on what they can do and how they can live. Even if they were manageable in the Middle Ages, that's no model for today. We're not going back to the Dimi, and it had to go. 
Now it's gone, so maybe, maybe there's a possibility of a new beginning. But most importantly, we offer the example of our example. You know that when the reform movement started in Judaism in the 19th century, it was very controversial. The rabbis were excommunicated. There was even a case recently where they found that a, uh, an early reform rabbi was poisoned by somebody because he was seen to be too dangerous and leading people astray. There were vicious pitch battles back and forth. The non-reform Jews called the reform synagogues churches. Too goyish, they would say. And the reform Jews considered the more traditional Jews backward and uncivilizable and smelly. In fact, one of the etymologies for the word kite as a slur against Jews is that it was invented by German Jews. Because all those Russian names ending in ski were dirty and uncivilized, and they were the kites, the keys. Well, so we've had our own experience with the difficulties, the growing pains, the birth pains of new reform, of new alternatives. As I said at the colloquium, pronouncing it very carefully, what we hope for the Muslim world is the joy of sex. S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> because we in Jewish life have experienced the joy of many sects of Judaism. And the more denominations you have, and the more willing you are to understand that there can be denominations that are not you, the more grounds you have to tolerate other people as well. If there were a possibility for a reform Islam or a conservative Islam that we interpreted Sharia law, or even, dare we say, a humanistic Islam, if that could be a possibility, then tolerating Jews is simply one more step. If you can tolerate your brother who disagrees with you, you can learn to tolerate somebody else. Now the truth is, there was a bit of false advertising in this colloquium. We did not solve the puzzle. In fact, in my introduction, I pointed out that this is modeled on a crossword, and when I try to do the New York Times crossword, I don't aspire to finishing every single square. Because if I don't know the name of the lead ballerina of the Bolshoi Ballet in 1927, it's not a judgment on whether I've achieved something in working on this puzzle. Our goal in exploring the topic was not to solve it all, but to open some doors, to find a path to diminish it, to improving the situation, a slightly better world. Now, I've highlighted a few of the presentations in the book. There are more. We have the DVD available as well if you wanted to see the presentations live and all the discussions that follow. In the end, we have to accept that progress is progress, even if it is not success. And when you're looking at solving this thorny puzzle, any progress would be very welcome. I was really struck by an experience recently at the Chicago Board of Rabbis, where uh, two representatives, one Palestinian and one Israeli, from a group called Bereaved Families for Peace and Dialogue, or something like that, uh, came to speak. Uh, and this organization was featured in a documentary film called Encounterpoint, um, which told the stories of some of the people. There are families who have lost uh, a primary relative, parent, or child, to the conflict but who have decided that they need to dialogue. And where they found common ground is with other people on the other side who have lost similar ways. And so speaking at this um, event was a woman who had lost her son, who was in the reserves and was killed in the uh, territories, and a man who had lost his father in a crossfire between Israelis, Israelis and Palestinians. 
and the kind of dialogue they've created with each other in sharing their loss and, and creating a kind of common ground. They've drawn on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. They're trying to create the basis for a coexistence. It doesn't happen when you're fully enemies and never talk. You have to hear each other's stories. And if nothing else, and I love the line this woman used, she said, we have to get past all the dialogue and start getting more dialogue. There's too much dialogue when you tell your story. Let's get to some dialogue when you hear somebody else. And that again can be the basis for making some progress in some way. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the podcast. The book Jews and the Muslim World Solving the Puzzle is available from Amazon. From your browser, type amzn.to forward slash db capital N capital A capital N capital I. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.